Unlocking the Mystery of the U.S.-Saudi Relationship. We'll talk about that on this episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. Is everybody ready for the Mind Dog to make the show? Welcome, my friends, to yet another episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. I'm Matt Napo. Thanks for coming. It's great to have you here, as always. Uh, David Rundell is widely regarded as one of the um, America's foremost experts in on Saudi Arabia. After studying Arabic at Oxford, he served as an American diplomat for 30 years in Washington, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, Syria, Tunisia, and the United Arab Emirates. He's written a book called Vision or Mirage, Saudi Arabia at the Crossroads. It's my pleasure to talk to him about this subject tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, please uh, open your ears, open your minds, and help me welcome in David H. Rendell to the Mind Dog TV podcast. David, welcome. Greetings. It's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, I, like the, I like the name Mind Dog. That's a great, great uh, name for a show. Thank you. Mind Dog is your mind's best friend. Well, uh, I, hope, I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> Actually, I'm surprised. I'm surprised you made it here tonight, uh, David. I, I was uh, expecting that every news organization or, or more, every cable news organization in the United States would probably want to comment from you on the events of today with the report about the Khashoggi thing coming out and Joe Biden's reaction to that. And am I, I'm wrong on that? No, you're right about that. I've had a lot of phone calls today, and uh, I've answered a lot of questions. So that uh, is true. that is true. Um, now, I wasn't sure if you're interested tonight about talking about the history of the book and the history of the relationship, or if you're more interested in talking about the current events, I'm happy to discuss it either way. Well, all, all of it. Uh, I, I'll tell you my, my perspective on this. I am, uh, I think a lot of people are, um, who don't live politics, don't live in the political world. When we, when we see things uh, and stories that come out, uh, we, we tend to form uh, strong opinions about stuff without really getting deep into the minutia of the story. So I think a lot of people have a very rudimentary understanding of our relationship with Saudi Arabia and uh, why we are so dependent on them. Of course, oil is is where it comes down to. But as I was saying before you got here, the oil crisis was like 45, 47 years ago now. Uh, and we haven't really come up with a an alternative to get us less dependent on the Middle East and, and the massive oil reserves and production uh, capabilities of these countries. Uh, so I, I want to talk about that. But if you would like, if if you can give the Reader's Digest version of the history of how we got to the uh, the King Solomon and, and MBS uh, um, regime, I guess is, is the best way to call it, Where, how we got to today uh, without taking up the entire program. I would appreciate well, that. Well, sure. How much time do we have? Just we have as long. We Really, I, I generally like to keep it under an hour and a half. I, no, no, some, have, okay. If you told me we had 10 minutes, I'd, I'd, I'd give you a different version. <laughs> if you got an... 30 minutes, I can do it in 30 minutes. Okay, go. Um, look, at the end of the day, the United States and Saudi Arabia have a long-standing relationship which has existed for 75 years and is defined by common interests. 
Saudi Arabia and the United States have a great many common interests. Those provide, if you will, guardrails on the sides of the relationship that keep it within a certain lane. We have almost no shared values. And therefore, <laughs> within that lane that is defined by our interest, the relationship, if you look at it as a ball, is constantly bouncing back and forth between those guardrails. And so some administrations place more emphasis on our interests and other administrations place more interest on our values. I should have begun by saying that the fundamental question of American diplomacy that every American leader has to address is a tension between our interests and our values. They are not always the same. Absolutely, if I get that. If we abandon our interests, we have nothing really worth defending. But if we abandon, I should say, I'm sorry, if we abandon our values, we have nothing worth defending. If we abandon our interests, we have no way to defend our values. And this puts us in a different situation with other countries, China being a killer example, that doesn't really care about how you behave within your own country. It's one of the keys of their foreign policy is that they really could care less what you do in your country. They want to know about your relationship with them. And quite frankly, they don't care much about what you think about how they behave in their country where they have imprisoned uh, thousands of these Uyghurs uh, in what seem to be concentration camps or certainly re-education re camps. So we have this tension between our values and our interests. And our interests with Saudi Arabia are significant, our shared interests. The first one, as you pointed out, is oil. The Saudis control a great deal of the global oil supply. But what a lot of people don't understand is that what makes Saudi Arabia important to global oil markets is not that they're the biggest exporter or the fact that they have some of the cheapest and inex most inexpensive oil in the world. What makes them important is the fact that they play the role of central bank of oil. Now, what do I mean by that? And this is something which most people do not focus on. Absolutely. I'm Saudi Arabia, as a political decision, not a commercial decision, drills oil wells, and then shuts them in. And they have on any given day, usually about 2 million barrels a day of production, which is roughly 2% of the global consumption on a day, daily basis, that they just keep shut in. Now, if you were the president of ExxonMobil and you drilled, and, and this costs them a lot of money. When they last time they did it, it was about $50 billion. So if you spent $50 billion drilling oil wells and then just shut them in, you would, and you were the president of Exxon, you'd soon be looking for a new job. But the Saudis do this and they keep this reserve capacity and they use it to keep prices stable and moderate. Now, why do they do that? Do they do that because they like American motorists to drive around in SUVs? No, they don't do that. 
The reason they do this is because they want, they have a lot of oil and they want the world to remain dependent on their relatively cheap oil for a long time. They do not want everybody to, they do not want a hundred dollar barrel of oil. Okay, this is something that a lot of people don't recognize, okay? There are members of OPEC who do not have big reserves, who want to get as much money as they can as fast as they can. The Saudis say, wow, at $120 a barrel, everybody's going to go get an electric car. Everybody's going to put the third insulation on their roof, and everybody's going to start drilling for oil in Alaska and the North Sea, which is exactly what did happen the last time that they had a big price spike. So they say, no, 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 we don't want that. We do not want the price to be so high that people either conserve energy or go find other sources. And we do not want it to be unstable so that people say, I can't rely on oil prices. I'm going to have to find another source. So they, for their own, if you will, selfish reasons, have their interests quite aligned with ours. And so how do they do this? If you would be surprised to note that the, in the last 20 years, the Saudis have changed oil supplies to decrease the price of oil just as many times as they have done it to increase the price of oil. Wow. When, there is, when there is a hurricane in the Gulf of Mexico and, price, and our production is shut in, they make up the difference. When Venezuela cannot produce because it's incompetently run, they make up the difference. When Kuwait is invaded, that's a good example. When Kuwait is invaded and all of Kuwait's production goes offline, there was no spike in oil. We didn't have gas lines in the United States when Kuwait was invaded by Iraq. Why was that? Because the Saudis made up the difference. And here's the other one which people don't really think about. When the Trump administration says we are going to put sanctions on Iran and we are going to stop Iranian oil from being exported, how come the price didn't go up? Didn't go up because the Secretary of Treasury called the Saudis and said, we're going to do this and we need you to kick in. And they did. Who's now, making that decision? Is it King Solomon? Is it MBS? Who, who, who's, the, who, who's he the calling? King, the king and the son there. It's a, it's a good question. Um, the king and the son are kind of like the chairman of the board and the CEO. And so the chairman of the board is ultimately in charge. But the CEO runs things on a daily basis. I would imagine that on, in fact, I would say I know that on very major decisions, the king is certainly included. On daily running of the country on minor decisions, he probably doesn't pay attention. And I would also argue that that relationship is moving. Five years ago, the crown prince was less powerful and the king was more powerful. And that relationship changes every day, really, as the king gets older. Um, and probably less healthy, and, and as the crown prince becomes more powerful, uh, but the, it's a team effort, really. It's a com it's a combination of a of a chairman of the board and a and a CEO, really. Well, I, uh, the the reason I, I ask that question is, and because most people down here on on my level of understanding of uh, diplomacy and international affairs uh, are under the impression that the king is more favorable to U.S. and and more friendly to us than MBS will be. And as years, as 
time goes on and King is, you know, getting older, as you say, and MBS takes over, uh, are we looking at that, our relationship getting worse? No, I would argue that if our relationship gets worse with MBS, it's because we pushed it that way. Hmm. MBS went way out of his way earlier in his career to make essentially a beauty contest or a beauty pageant uh, tour of the United States where he consciously tried to develop a good relationship with all sorts of leaders. He met with four presidents. He met with the leaders of technology. He met with the leaders in Hollywood. He met with the leaders in finance. So he would like to have a good relationship with the United States. The Khashoggi thing has greatly uh, tarnished his reputation in the United States and has made it very difficult for him to have a good relationship with the United States. But I don't think it's his desire to distance himself from the United States. No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. Do you think he wasn't smart enough to foresee what the Khashoggi murder would do to, that, uh, to our relationship? Yes, I think that's correct. I wow. think that um, there are many things that you can compliment Mohammed bin Salman for. And, <laughs> and I think that if I can just interject, uh, and, and I'll get to your question in, in a second, but many Americans are unaware of the profound changes that this young man has introduced in Saudi Arabia. He has changed Saudi society profoundly. I mean, he has let women drive. He has taken the religious police off the street. He has opened movie theaters. And, but each of those are just sort of tip of the iceberg. He dismantled the guardianship regulations. What were the guardianship regulations? Most Americans are unaware of that. But yeah. In Saudi Arabia, a woman had to have the written permission of her husband or her son, who would be her guardian, to open a bank account, go to university, get a job, get a passport, leave the country, have a cesarean delivery, you name it. These were actual laws. He changed all that. He let women, if you talk to most women in Saudi Arabia, and especially poor women, because who cares if you can drive if you already got a BMW and a chauffeur, okay? It's the poor women who were spending half of their weekly income on a taxi ride to work. And he changed that. So now they can go buy a Hyundai and they can get to work. And he's, he's implemented daycare for women who want to work so they have a place to put their kid. He's implemented, he actually pays for poor women part of their transportation costs so they can get to work. These are things which people don't seem to focus on in the United States. I can tell you people in Saudi Arabia focus on them and right. he's very popular in Saudi Arabia because of that. And the reaction in Saudi Arabia to the negative press that he gets in America is really quite angry. I mean, I was quite surprised at the people in Saudi Arabia saying quite bluntly, who the hell is the president of the United States, or actually the quote was at that time, and I, I, he probably won't be happy to hear this, but it was Senator Lindsey Graham. I'm talking to Saudis and they're saying to me, who is this Senator Lindsey who tells us who our, who our vice president should be? Should we go and tell him that you know Kamala Harris can't be vice president of the United States? Right, right. So um, in fact, to be honest, this attacking of Mohammed bin Salman in some ways makes him more popular. 
uh, and rally support to him in, the, in, in within Saudi Arabia. So, yeah, yeah. anyway, um, go ahead. I, no, I was just going to, I, 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 I want to let you continue answering the question, but it just strikes me that the way you just uh, educated us on that, uh, if, if we were going to compare that to somebody in this country, if, if somebody in this country made those kind of reforms, we would be branded as an extreme left radical, uh, progressive, whatever. Uh, and nobody has that kind of view of MBS in this country, but no, that's true. And I think that's, that's right. And that's why it's, um, it's unfortunate because, you know, and look, I don't work for the Saudi government. Uh, I don't work for the Saudi Ministry of Information. I'm an American patriot. I try to explain Saudi Arabia to Americans so that we make wise policies. And many times in the Middle East, we have not made wise policies because we didn't understand. So the Saudis are going through a profound transformation in their society, which is being pushed by the government. It's mostly popular. But there are probably 20% of the people, maybe 25% of the people, who resent it, who, who want to, to be like the Taliban or, or Al-Qaeda, who think that women shouldn't be driving, who think that women should still have to put on their abaya, who think, quite frankly, that girls shouldn't go to school. And he's confronting those people, and right now he's winning. Um, the United States by and large, backed the Arab Spring, which was, by and large, a failure. Right. Uh, we have a civil war in Syria. We have a civil war in Yemen. We had two revolutions in Egypt, and we have the total disintegration of Libya. Right. Uh, the Arab Spring was not a success. What Mohammed bin Salman is doing is transforming Saudi Arabia, and he hasn't had a revolution, and he hasn't had violence. And he's he's also trying to reform the economy. Now that's more difficult. He's you know he's having a hard time there because oil prices have been low and because COVID has affected the economy. But he's trying to move the economy away from a total dependence on oil. Both of these things, social liberalization and moving the economy away from oil, are things that we've been encouraging him to. We have been encouraging the Saudis to do for thirty years since long before Mohammed bin Salman was born. And in fact, we should be encouraging him and supporting these changes and not focusing, quite frankly, on the arrest of a few dissidents or, to be honest, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. I know people will be very unhappy to hear me say that. They'll probably criticize me. But the reality is that there's a lot of good things going on in Saudi Arabia and to allow them to be totally pushed aside because of what happened to Jamal Khashoggi, which I'm not condoning or approving of uh, or saying that people shouldn't be held accountable. But it's one thing that's happened in a much larger relationship. And all of our relationships, this is the thing I think that if I left your listeners with one message, that it is all diplomatic relationships are multifaceted. There's nobody who we agree 100%. When you go to vote for someone, you usually don't vote, you don't agree with him 100%. You think about, I think most of what this guy is saying, I like, so I'll vote for him. So it's the same with relationships, with international relations, that nobody does everything the way we like it to be. Thank you uh, for that. 
you have to balance though you have to balance you have to balance your interests and your values and you have to balance the good things they're doing and the bad things they're doing and to me it's quite surprising that we're more than happy to try to improve relations with iran when as you probably know you're well informed that just last week a belgian court convicted the iranians of trying to blow up a demonstration yeah. in in Belgium, where they were going to kill dozens of people uh, who were considered to be dissidents, anti-regime people, and that the bomb was actually carried in the diplomatic pouch. So, you know, the Iranians who we're trying to improve our relationship with are not saints or angels, and, I'm, and neither are the Saudis, but we shouldn't totally destroy our relationship that has served us well for a long time. And again, the Chinese, I mean, they're putting people in concentration camps and we're trying to improve relationship with them. So again, I'm not saying we should ignore what they're doing to the Uyghurs, but we should put that in context with our relationship with Saudi Arabia. Um, so, you know, you asked me, what do we, what do the, why do, what are these guardrails that keep our relationship with Saudi Arabia, the interests that we share? I talked a little bit about oil. For the last 20 years, the Saudis have cooperated extensively with us on counterterrorism. And they have saved American lives. And if the CIA were inclined to release a report on that, they would confirm that many in many instances, Saudi cooperation with the United States has saved lives, American lives in counterterrorism. The Saudis are now promoting a more moderate form of Islam. They did not always do that. Uh, we need to be very candid and honest that they had a very conservative and xenophobic reactionary form of Islam that they preached for a while, for a long time, for most of their history. But that has changed now. And the Saudis sent their former minister of justice to the anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. That's quite a change. Right. And and this same gentleman, uh, Mohammed al-Isa, made a speech in which he said all Muslims living in foreign countries need to obey the laws of that country. And if they feel they can't do that, they need to leave. That's quite dramatically different than what the Saudis used to preach. And then the final thing that needs to be mentioned is that they are quietly but actively supporting the resolution of the Arab-Israeli conflict. They would like to see that resolved. They have quietly supported the fact that Bahrain and the UAE and Sudan have now recognized Israel. They have begun to allow Israeli flights. For the first time in 60 years, they're allowing flights, LL flights, to fly over Saudi Arabia. They never did that before. So they would like to see that, that issue resolved. Um, so what does all this boil down to? What this boils down to is that Saudi Arabia and the United States are both status quo powers. <laughs> we both like peace and stability. Why do we like peace and stability? Because we're doing pretty well. Yeah, we like it the way things are. If you're, uh, if you're Iran, you don't like it the way things are. 
you are they are, they are a revolutionary power they would like to change they would like things to be disruptive they would like the united states to leave the middle east they would like to see the uh, the to israel see israel disappear uh, so they're not a status quo power but saudi arabia has a lot to lose they have a pretty good thing going for themselves right now most saudis are quite happy that you know they're not living in syria or yemen or libya uh, and so the united states and saudi arabia uh, at the end of the day, share common interests. And we need to recognize that. I think we need to also recognize that between Greece and Korea, we do not have a stable friend, except yeah. Saudi Arabia. Okay, that's a big part of the world to say that we do not have a major friend. Now, you can argue that while we have a base in, Ku in Kuwait, and we have one in in Bahrain, and we have one in Qatar, and we have one in the UAE. This is true, we do. And we don't have a big base in Saudi Arabia anymore. But I can assure you that if Saudi Arabia were destabilized, it would have profound impact on all of those smaller states that border on Saudi Arabia. So Saudi Arabia is the linchpin of our presence in the Arabian Peninsula, and that is important to us from a geostrategic standpoint and the russians and the chinese recognize that and are quite actively trying to uh, elbow us out right uh so why it seems to me naive to um now it's actually worse than naive it's it's, it's actually dumb um <laughs> to um to throw away a relationship that has served us well it has problems it has warts i've been involved in the saudi american relationship for 40 years yeah, I, I probably know. I probably know it better than pretty much any other American. I mean, I've well, done it since I was 25 years old. That's so, why I'm extremely excited to talk to you tonight because I think it's a I think there's a lot of need for Americans who are have at least minimal interest to learn more about the factual nature of our relationship and and why it is so important. And also, um, this idea, I think the biggest thing that you've already brought to the table here is this idea of values and interests, uh, because you use the word friend, and I think a lot of people who have a you know basic working man knowledge of what's going on in the Middle East or anywhere in the world, they, they cling to this idea of friend when there's really, there's no nation that's really a friend. Everything is based on interest and values and where we, where we kind of draw that balance. Am I correct in that? Yeah, that is correct. Um, you know, it's nice to think that we have a special relationship with this country or that country and we're their friends and we would help them no matter what. I think at the end of the day, I don't remember whether it was Bismarck or Metternich or somebody, but who said that, you know, nations don't have friends. Right. Um, they have interests. And if when our interests, always our interests are not 100% aligned with anybody. I mean, we, we have trade disputes with Canada. We don't have a better friend than Canada. And we're, we argue with them about dairy products and... Yeah. Theater shakes and you know and and auto parts imports. I mean, we got where there's always tensions, but there those tensions are very much um, in comparison. They're insignificant compared to the many places where our interests are aligned. So that's true. Always at the end of the day, nations have. What is the purpose of the foreign policy of the United States? 
what is the job of the president and the secretary of state every morning when they wake up? And their job is really pretty simple, to protect the security and prosperity of the American people. Okay, that's it. Now that may sound like I'm Donald Trump, America first. I don't mean it to sound that way, but mm. that is the job of the American government is to protect the security and the prosperity of the American people. Right. I think and, for the working working class people, regular workaday people, that is so complicated that we can't really see the nuance in in in, in all of that. And it uh, we like to we like a world where things are black and white, good guys, bad guys. Uh, they wear white hats, so we, they wear black hats, and we can tell who the enemy is. And so when, with the stuff like Khashoggi. I can tell you, I never heard of Khashoggi before, and I read read the Washington Post. I never read his column. I never even knew any, he existed until all this. So I don't have any personal investment in that. Uh, but after that came out, we saw uh, what looked like, you know, at at the G summits and all all this stuff. Uh, Khashoggi looking like him and uh, Putin were being were were more friendly and both kind of like, and we saw it in the media and probably manipulative in a way, uh, of him looking at uh, Trump like, what a sucker, and he's palling up to Putin over here. And it, it just seemed like he was relishing the position of being so, uh, seen as a bad guy to the general public in the United States. Now, m maybe I'm wrong about that, but I think that's the the general workaday impression that this guy was like a typical Bond villain in some people's eyes. Do, do, does that make any sense to you? I, I'm not 100% familiar with, I, you may be talking about the um, G20 meeting in Buenos right. Aires that occurred very quickly after the Khashoggi murder. Yes, I am. Everyone was distancing themselves from Mohammed bin Salman. Um, I think it's fair to say that he was feeling very isolated at that time and abandoned by some of his traditional allies. And he was happy that some people sought him out and that in particular, Putin did seek him out and welcomed him and made it clear to him that he didn't really care about Khashoggi. So I think that's true. I also think, in fact, I don't think I know that uh, a number of other world leaders who probably wouldn't want me to mention who they were, but privately went to see him in his hotels uh, okay. and that they made it very clear that while they weren't going to be seen publicly on the stage, shaking his hand, they were more than happy to continue doing business with him right? Uh, because they recognized the importance of Saudi Arabia. Right. Uh, so I, go ahead. Uh, I just think at some point we, we get caught up on, and, and I know you're, you're right. I'm going to get the hate mail on this and I, I, I'll take it. It's info at minddogtv.com. Uh, that we get caught up with the murder of a single individual and like that is going to be, and I'm not condoning the murder. I'm just saying that we have done, our government has done things, every government has done things which, uh, were not, uh, not in the right but thing to do. Let me interrupt just for a second and say that. I don't know for a fact, some people do, I do not, whether they intended to murder Jamal Khashoggi. Wow. I believe that they intended to kidnap him. They do kidnap people. Right. I have met people, I know people 
who they kidnapped. Okay. Well, what, what would they do with him once they kidnapped him? They bring him home. They bring him home and put him in their palace and keep him there. Okay. Tell him to be quiet. <laughs> um, I don't think that if you were going to murder someone in Istanbul, you would do it in your own consulate. I think that is kind of, I mean, they make mistakes that people do stupid things. But I think if you're going to kill somebody in Istanbul, you'd shoot them in the street. And the Iranians have done that more than once to dissidents. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah. Again, this, this doesn't get the kind of headlines in America. But Iranian dissidents are shot in and kidnapped, quite frankly, in Istanbul uh, within the last year. So, um, but no one seems to pay attention to that. So in any event, my point is that if you're going to kill somebody, you don't do it in your own consulate. Gotcha. Kidnapping them is something that we also do. We call it rendition. Okay. But we do it and we right. have done it. Okay. So yes, I think there is a somewhat of an exaggerated emphasis on the nefarious nature of this. Now I don't, I'm not condoning it. It shouldn't happen again, but I would also argue that at this point, I think, you know, even if you think Mohammed bin Salman is obtuse, he's not going to do this again. Right. I mean, you made the point that this was unacceptable behavior, uh, that we cannot have relations with somebody who's seen to do this kind of thing and don't do it again. And I think that, you know, the question when when I see that the, the Biden administration wants to reevaluate their relationship with the Saudis, I think to myself, this reevaluation will be valuable. It will be helpful to America if it is focused on changing future behavior, if it is focused on assigning blame and punishment for things that were already done, that is a waste of time. We're not the world court. I mean, it's not our job to go and punish people for what they did. It's our job to make sure that in the future they behave differently. And I think that will, I think we've made that point. I I, th I would agree with that. Uh, I think we can't go around looking for every uh, instance of bad behavior and acting like we have moral uh, authority to kind of dictate what every country's valuables and uh, values and principles should be. Uh, but uh, on, on now, I want to get clear on this because it, it's it's an important thing. You talk about uh, MBS as a agent for reform and progressivism in um, Saudi Arabia. Do is he? that because he's a true believer that it needs to be done or is he trying is it a political calculation no that's a very good point that's an excellent point and i should have i should have made that very clear he is promoting social reform and he is promoting economic reform he is not a democrat he is not trying to turn saudi arabia into some sort of a constitutional monarchy he believes in the monarchy what he's trying to do is save the monarchy preserve the monarchy so no, uh, you know, that you have to be clear about. What he's trying to do is preserve the El Saud dynasty, and he believes that the way to do that is to modernize its society, which is essential to improving its economy so that it can do more than um, produce oil right. and chemicals. Now, at some point in the future, would the El Saud dynasty decide that they could become a constitutional monarchy and that the monarchy in Saudi Arabia, you know, Saudi Arabia is now the last traditional absolute monarchy of a strategically important country in the world. They're the last one. I mean, that's it. They're, they are a, um, 
they're a dinosaur in a sense, uh, but it has worked for them for a whole bunch of reasons, which we could talk about for a long time. But the reality is that the monarchy is, has, has been successful in Saudi Arabia. Whether it can successfully transform itself over the next 25 years into a constitutional monarchy is an open question. I think that will have to happen at some point in time. I think there's a reasonable possibility that, that that could happen peacefully, as it did in many European countries. Americans have a hard time understanding monarchies. Let me just interject that for a minute and of say that <laughs> Americans do not understand monarchies very well because we've always been taught since we were in sixth grade that King George was a bad guy. He was a tyrant. We had good George Washington got rid of bad King George III, and we don't like kings because they're. And it says in our Declaration of Independence that the, that George was George III was a tyrant. So we tend to see the world divided into republics where the emphasis is on human rights and liberty and elections and dictatorships where the emphasis is on fear and control and despotism. Uh, monarchies are actually somewhere in between. Uh, successful monarchies are not all dictatorships. People did not, you know, in Henry VIII's day in England, you know, most of Europe was run by monarchs for most of its history. And people didn't get up every day and say, now who the hell is Henry VIII? I didn't vote for him. How come he's, <laughs> you know? People, yeah, yeah. Said, people said, okay, you know, he's the king, you know, and uh, and he's doing a pretty good job. So, you know, we're not going to get too upset. So, uh, but over time that, that changed. So whether or not Saudi Arabia can make a peaceful transformation to a constitutional monarchy is an open question. But I would say that they have a much better chance of evolving into some sort of a participatory government than the other so-called Arab republics. Because right. all of the so-called Arab republics are post-colonial governments, okay? This is getting a little bit more abstract than most of your listeners want to understand, perhaps. But Saudi Arabia is the only Arab country that never had a colonial presence. Right. I, I get so, that. And, and so that... They, they were not, they didn't have their religious institutions, their legal institutions, their educational institutions basically torn up and put into a European model. And then when the Europeans all decided to leave one day, they said, okay, now you need to have a parliament and you need to have a president. And within a very short period of time, the military took over in every one of those countries, every one of them. I mean, they're all run by some guy who's a president who used to be a general. Okay. That's just a fact. I mean, maybe in the case of Gaddafi, he was only a colonel, right? But I mean, you know, basically they're all generals, Mubarak, Nasser, Sisi, Assad, uh, Saddam Hussein, these guys, I mean, the, uh, Abdullah Saleh in Yemen, they're all generals because the only people that were left in charge who had power was the military in all these places and they pretty soon took over. Um, Saudi Arabia is rare in the Arab world in the sense that the military is very clearly under civilian control. That's that's how it works in America, but that's not how it works in most of the Arab world. Right. Uh, and that's a big difference. So I'm hopeful. I wouldn't say optimistic. I'm hopeful that they can evolve into a more participatory system. But to answer your question and to be clear about that, no, 
Mohammed bin Salman is not a Democrat. He is not trying to promote democracy. He's trying to preserve the monarchy. Okay. And, he sees, and he sees economic and social reform as a method of doing that. Now, I have to make a, uh, a confession here. I have not read the book. I only ordered it this morning. So uh, I have read as much as I can about the synopsis of it. And, and, and I know I understand that you get in deep into the weeds about some of the history of it, bring us up to today, and then try to forecast a little bit of the future. And I, if I'm misstating that, you can. Oh, that's exactly me. right. That's exactly what the book is. I mean, that's exactly what you Look, the, the thesis of the book is that for many years, people thought Saudi Arabia was unstable. When I went there, people were telling me that, you know, Saudi Arabia has six months or maybe two years to survive and it will, be, it will collapse. And they thought it was going to end up just like the Shah of Iran. Um, that didn't happen. Uh, so Saudi Arabia has been more stable than many people predicted for a long time. Because it is changing so rapidly today, it is less stable than many people presume today. Uh, and that is one reason why this attack on Mohammed bin Salman is, in my view, ill-conceived. Because Mohammed bin Salman is the next leader of Saudi Arabia. If you get rid of, and I, I should have backed up and said this, this is, this is a big part of the book. So the question is, why was it more stable before and is less stable now? There are many reasons for that, which the book goes into. But one, one critical reason is that the old king had 34 sons and the government went from one brother to another brother to another brother. And each one got a turn and each one saw it as in his interest to play ball. They all had a say that was kind of a consensus driven Many of them ran their own ministries. Some of them, uh, three or four of them had their own private armies. Um, so it was much more of a consensus collegial uh, operation. Some people will tell you that King Salman ended that system, which had provided stability for a long time. Things changed slowly, but when they changed, there was a consensus. King Salman did not end that system. The system ended itself because all the brothers died. So there's no more brothers. So you can't keep doing that system. So you've got to go to the grandsons now. And instead of 34 grandsons, there are more than 500 grandsons. Wow. And each one of them thinks, you know, I should be king. I'm smart. I, I got a good degree from American University. I've got experience. My father was important. How come I'm not going to be king? And this was a real recipe for a Game of Thrones, for a very destabilizing episode in Saudi history. Right. And everybody recognized that, including me, who has been, if you will, one of the advocates saying that for a long time that Saudi Arabia was more stable than many people gave them credit for. But even I... Uh, recognized that this was a real danger point. So did the king. And the king basically engineered the rise of Mohammed bin Salman. Now, you that's complicated how he did it, how he sidelined one guy and then another guy, and how he took over this uh, 
military force and then that military force and then this security force and it's a sort of comp it's a complicated story but effectively he neutered everybody who could oppose Mohammed bin Salman so he made Mohammed bin Salman the guy now you may not like Mohammed bin Salman you may think he could have chosen someone else but regardless he made that choice and now we're not going to have this game of thrones of 500 cousins fighting each other now throughout my entire career in Saudi Arabia there have always been a king a crown prince and a deputy crown prince one two and three and when the king dies the crown prince becomes king within hours just like the vice president and the deputy crown prince becomes crown prince so this has provided a very peaceful and rapid and effective mechanism of succession which is lacking in most Arab countries now we have a situation for the first time in, in 50 years that there is not a number three okay they haven't picked a number three there is no number three I wasn't aware of that so what happens if we take out Mohammed bin Salman what happens if you know the king says okay Secretary Blinken, I get it. You don't like my son, so we're going to have to pick somebody else and we're going to get rid of him. Uh, it's not obvious who that's going to be. It's not obvious at all. Right. And, we're in the same, uh, not exactly the same position, but a similar uh, position with we were in Iraq when we thought, yeah, take out uh, Hussein and, and what happens. And, and not well thought out about what happens in the vacuum once he's gone. I get yeah, that. I mean, that's a very real issue. I mean, if you really decided that because of the murder of Jamal Khashoggi that and des despite all the other things which he's done in Saudi Arabia and despite his basic popularity within Saudi Arabia that somehow the United States has got to force the basically regime change in Saudi Arabia um, you better have a pretty good idea of what's going to come after that and I have seen no preparation for that at all no. I, I I would agree with that. And believe me, I'm not one of the people who call for regime change over there. What I don't understand is with all the foresight that we should have had in the last 50 years, um, why we haven't made a contingency plan. Because as the picture you paint right now is that world peace really is – uh, predicated upon a stable Saudi Arabia, because if that destabilizes and totally falls apart, we don't know what can happen in the Middle East, and it could be just a powder keg. Now, that that's my take on what you just what uh, yeah, just I, educated I, I, on. And that would be a it would be a it would be a dramatic deterioration in the security of Israel. Okay. You have right. to remember that uh, America has two real friends in the Middle East that have stood by us through thick and thin, uh, and that is Israel and Saudi Arabia. And both of them feel threatened by Iran today. Right. Uh, and so the collapse of Saudi Arabia uh, would be a real blow to Israel. And I, I'm sure if there were someone here from the Israeli embassy, they would, they would, if they were being candid, they would tell you that that's absolutely right. They do not want to see a destabilized Saudi Arabia. I think, uh, and and you can slap me down if you think I'm wrong here, but I think that's a, a, a just a mild understatement, a major understatement, because uh, it, it would also, you know be world peace would 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 be altered, or what our 
the balance of what keeps uh, the Middle East from going on fire. Would, what would, would happen? Like, let me just interrupt. If 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 the Saudi monarchy were to fall, it would re, if it were to fall by violence, right. it would be replaced by something like Al Qaeda or ISIS. Right. That's my concern. If it were replaced by peaceful methods, it would be replaced probably, not probably, by something similar to the Muslim Brotherhood government that took over Egypt for a year. Right. Neither one is good for us, right? Neither one of those groups share either our interests or our values. Okay? At least the Saudis share our interests. They may not share our values, but they share our interests. These guys don't share our interests or our values. And so those are the alternatives. And one of the things that strikes me always is interesting, and people say, well, so what if somebody else takes over Saudi Arabia? Uh, they're still going to have to sell us the oil. I mean, look, even the Iraqis had to sell us oil. Even, even Iran still sells us oil. So why should we care? You know, the, whoever, if, if ISIS takes over Saudi Arabia, they'll still sell us oil. And I just look at those people with a very puzzled, and I say, really? You would like to see ISIS or Al-Qaeda running Aramco with all the money they would make from that? What do you think they would do with that money? Do you think they would be helping support the government of Jordan or the government of Bahrain, or they would be answering our call when we say we need some more money for a highway in Afghanistan? I can assure you they would not be. So if that financial resource fell into the hands of someone who opposed us, that would have profoundly negative influence for the United States. It would also be a profoundly negative if, and we don't think about this too much in the United States, but we should think about it more, that 1.2 billion people every day turn to Mecca five times a day and listen to what is being said there. And if what is being said there is radical and anti-American, that makes a difference. Absolutely. And, and right now it's not. Right now they're saying don't be a suicide bomber. Don't go to Kuwait, uh, not to Kuwait, to Iraq and, and join the terrorists. Uh, don't, um, don't contribute to Al-Qaeda. They've been very um, clear about that. Uh, for Not always. They were not always that way 20 years ago. But in the last, since, you got to remember that Al-Qaeda declared war on the Saudis in 2003. I was there, okay? They tried to blow up Aramco, they tried to blow up the foreign ministry, they tried to kill a number of, they did, they not tried, they killed a lot of people. They killed, you know, well over 100 Saudi policemen in numerous shootouts. Uh, so they tried to blow up Mohammed bin Nayef, the Minister of Interior. Uh, so, you know, Al-Qaeda tried to topple the Saudi government. Al-Qaeda is not a friend of Saudi Arabia. Anybody who thinks that that bin Laden is somehow, you know, supported by the government of Saudi Arabia is just um, grossly misinformed. Not by the government, but uh, we are under the impression, uh, I'm talking about the workaday people who just go by, again, not everybody is on your level of information. And I'm thinking about the people who just get their news from CNN. We know that uh, he was a Saudi citizen who was born and raised in Saudi Arabia and a lot of the Al-Qaeda people, a lot of the people were Saudi uh, nationals. So that, in most people, the workaday people, conflates the idea that Al-Qaeda must be a, a Saudi or, or Saudi must be 
uh, aligned with Al-Qaeda because so many of those people in Al-Qaeda were Saudi. Uh, well, he, no, those, are, those, are, those are, I mean, those are reasonable suppositions. I think you'd, an honest assessment would be that this gets somewhat uh, esoteric and complicated, but the Saudi view of Islam is conservative and very fundamentalist and xenophobic, and it has contributed in the past and probably to, to some extent still today to extremists in Islam. That, that I, don't, I don't think a, a reasonable person could not deny that the teaching in Saudi schools, that the attitude of the Saudi government had in the past contributed to this. It specifically contributed to it in Afghanistan. Okay, and here you got to understand, here it, it gets, it gets, you know, it's, I don't want to get too much in the weeds for your friends and listeners, but the United States went to the Saudis and with the idea that they should send money and people and we would send weapons and we would together drive the Russians out I of Afghanistan. Right, I remember that. We encouraged that, okay? We, these people met with President Reagan in the White House and got pats on the back because we thought that was a great idea. And I've talked to some of these people in jail and, you know, they say to me, I don't get it. You know, I went to, I'm a Saudi. I went to Afghanistan. I risked my life. I fought to get Russians out of Afghanistan. And you called me a hero and you gave me weapons. And we got the Russians out because they were occupying a Muslim country. And then I decided to go to Chechnya because Chechnya is also a Muslim country that is occupied by Russians. And I started fighting there. And now you tell me I'm a terrorist. How come? I don't get it. So it's not as simple as, as you think. Um, no, I, I get that. So, uh, a lot of the nuance, and, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but a lot of that nuance that you talk about is easy to tell 30, 40 years down the road. Like in 1980, was there anybody around saying to, to President Reagan at the time, uh, maybe supporting um, the, the Saudis no, against... I don't think so. No, I don't think so. I think, you know, I saw nobody, in, in, including me. I mean, I, I don't think anybody saw what was happening. That um, essentially... It became ingrained in Saudi thinking that it was a good thing to help liberate oppressed Muslims. Right. And that we had a duty to, you could argue that, you know, the Americans think it was a good thing to, uh, I don't know, preserve democracy around the world. So we would go and fight, and we thought it was a good thing to fight communism. So we would go and fight communism in different places in the world. They began to believe that it was a good thing to help Muslims who were being oppressed by non-Muslims. And so that, that happened. And that was a big part of what was going on in Iraq uh, when Saudis were going to, to Iraq because they saw that as an American occupation. Anyway, that's getting a little bit off the, the tangential. Your question was what do, um, about bin Laden? Um, bin Laden was a Saudi, but long before 9-11, the Saudis had taken his citizenship stripped him of his assets, 
declared him basically a criminal and he had declared war on Saudi Arabia. And it is a fact that he used, if you read what the man wrote, he specifically stated that there were two enemies, the far enemy, which was the United States and the near enemy, which was the El Saud government. He never really expected that he could realistically topple the government of the United States. He did believe that he could topple the government of Saudi Arabia, but he believed also, and he put this in writing, it's not, it's like reading Mein Kampf, you know, the guy was pretty clear about what he was thinking. <laughs> um, he said, I need to break the relationship between the near devil and the close devil. Uh, and therefore, he planned 9-11 very much to break the Saudi-American relationship. And the reason that he used Saudis, and he had many people he could have used. He didn't have uh. to. And, and, and the pilots were not Saudis because he couldn't find Saudis who could do that. So he found other people to do that. But he got the, the muscle, if you will, were Saudis. And so it was very clear that he, he and he damn near succeeded. He damn near did break the relationship. Um, and then the Americans would have said the hell with the El Saud and if they get toppled, who cares? And that would have been exactly what he wanted. Wow. Uh, so um, that's just a fact. I mean, that, you know, that's not my opinion. It's a, it's a fact that I was not aware of. And if I'm not aware of it, I'm certainly sure that many of the people who, you know, are on my level of information were also not aware of it. So thank you for that. Well, you can't be aware of everything. I mean, that's kind of, you know, I'm a one trick pony. The only thing I know about is Saudi Arabia. <laughs> you know, people come to me and they say, what's happening in Egypt? I said, I don't know. Go read the New York times. You know, that, that's not my thing, I, um, but I know, but I know Saudi Arabia. And I well, know. I'm glad you, you just said that because everybody I've talked to about this book said David is the best authority in the world you could possibly talk to about this. So if you were looking for a, pro, a prognostication of the future of Saudi Arabia and American relations with Saudi Arabia, his is probably the most accurate. But with that said, looking back at like what we talked about with Reagan, it's, it's really hard to have a crystal ball about future relations and dipl diplomacy. I think you would agree with that because there were so many things. No, no, that I, 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 I said that very, very clearly in the book that I do not have a crystal ball. Right. What I put in the book were what economists would call leading indicators. So I stated that there were political, economic, and social changes taking place in Saudi Arabia. The course of those changes can be understood and anticipated by looking at these markers. And so there are five or six markers and you, and to some extent I had to change them as I wrote the book because certain things happened. I said, you know, if they let women drive, that would be a good thing. But then they let women drive. So I had to rewrite the book. Right. So, um, you know, there are markers you can look for to see how things are changing. But do I know how things are going to change? No, I don't. I, I know how I hope things would change, but uh, you got to look at the markers to see how they actually are changing. Right. And I would say this, and I, and I think this needs to be said, um, Saudi Arabia has become more authoritarian, it has become more of a police state, it has become less democratic than it, uh, than it was under Mohammed bin Salman. That, that needs to be recognized, that, that while he has done a great deal 
for social liberalization and economic reform. He is not a Democrat and he's not pushing that agenda. King Abdullah, interestingly or not, the king before King Salman, was kind of quietly, slowly moving in that direction. And Mohammed bin Salman and his father um, have reversed that and have said, no, that's not the way to, to preserve the monarchy. Right now, we, and I think, you know, if you ask them if they were here and they were being candid with us, I think they would say, look, we need to make these changes in our society and our economy. And it will be, they need to, to some extent, be forced. Right. And I'll just give you an example. They have a parliament in Saudi Arabia. It's more like a house of lords in the sense that they're appointed. They're not elected. But they have some authority in making laws. Three times they tried to bring up the idea of women driving. And for certain twice, you could argue whether the third time was really a time, but twice for sure they did it. And the conservatives in their parliament uh, blocked it. So the king and this, his son are finally the ones that said, the heck with it, you know, we're just going to do it. You know, we don't care what you guys say. So um, in many ways, the monarchy has been a force for progressive change more than, and they've pushed the envelope. I mean, they, you probably know this. I mean, the question of girls' education, which King Faisal introduced, uh, you know, many years ago now. But when he did that, he faced intense resistance to the idea of girls going to school. So yeah. much so that he had to use the National Guard, very much like the desegregation of schools in the South, um, that the National Guard was called out to, to basically enforce the fact that girls could go to school. Wow. Um, when they first introduced television in Saudi Arabia, they had riots in which people were killed because can... some people thought television is a terrible, blasphemous, uh, terrible thing. And, um, you know, we don't want it, right. uh, work of the devil or whatever. So the first cars, they burnt the first cars. <laughs> right. So, you know, they, they are, this is probably the last thing I would say to you in terms of understanding Saudi Arabia is that when geneticists want to look at a very isolated gene pool, they go to places where nobody ever visited. They go to Iceland or they go to Tierra del Fuego, some remote island. And they also go to the center of Saudi Arabia, which is called the Nejd, because nobody went there for, for actually many hundreds of years because it was surrounded by a desert and there was nothing there. The reason Saudi Arabia was never colonized was not because the Saudis were clever or strong. There was no food. <laughs> nobody wanted to go there. There's like, why, why would I want to colonize this place? Forget it. You know, it's like a waste of time. So they remained isolated from the mainstream of global culture. Uh, and this affected them. And they are in many ways, a um, couple hundred years behind everybody else. And I'll just, but, but not as far as some people think. And I'll just give you one final anecdote, or you can ask him more questions if you want. But, um, you know, recently, one of the changes that was a couple of years ago now that um, they started to let women check into hotels by themselves, unaccompanied, an unaccompanied woman can go into a hotel and register before that was prohibited. Um, 
you would be arrested for something called attempted prostitution. I don't know what attempted prostitution is, but that's, that's <laughs> nice try. Nice try, right? So, uh, <laughs> anyway, so um, first time I was at the check-in counter, and uh, you know, and the, a woman was checking in. I was astonished. I said, "Wow, that's amazing!" You know, a lady is actually checking in by herself. Wow, things are really changing around here. I came home and I told my mother this. I said, you know, things are really changing in Saudi Arabia. You know, they let ladies, uh, now they can check into hotels. And she said, David, in 1950, when I was in university, I could not check into a hotel in New York City as a single woman. Wow. I said, really? She goes, that's in my lifetime. In 1950, she actually, 1952, she said, 1952, I could not check into a hotel. A single woman could not check into a hotel. I don't know if they'd arrest you for attempted prostitution, but they wouldn't check you in. And you're not talking about the Bible Belt. You're talking about New York City. I'm talking about New York City, where wow. my mother went to university. So, um, yeah, she said, you know, you couldn't do that. So, um, so they're not that far behind. Wow. So, that... um, you know, they gave women the right to vote much sooner after they let men vote. They have municipal elections, which they don't really account for that much, I wouldn't right. say today. But they have elections, and uh, they let women vote. Um, they have women in their parliament. Um, so, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're making a lot of changes with regards to women. That's for sure. Right. I mean, now they have women are deputy ministers, deputy mayors that soon they'll be, I think, ministers eventually, not, not before too long. Uh, they have now, but you know, there are many jobs that women couldn't do. Women couldn't be geologists, engineers, lawyers, all these things were prohibited. And that was true in America. I mean, I live in, I have a, I have a flat in London and right down the street from where I live in London, there's one of those historical signs they put up. It says this was the home of the first woman doctor in Britain, the first woman to become a doctor in Britain. And this was like 1860 or something, right? So that's a while ago, but nonetheless, there was prohibition. Not that long ago. <laughs> there was a time when it was illegal for women to go to, you know, to be doctors in England. Right. So in any event, what I'm saying is that they are moving in the right direction. They're moving pretty quickly. Mohammed bin Salman is part of that. And while we need to put those markers down so that Mohammed bin Salman knows that there are certain things which are unacceptable, which I think he sure knows now, um, to throw him under the bus would be a serious mistake, not just, yeah. not just for the Saudi people, but for our own interests. I think anytime we engage in regime change, we should really rethink it and th rethink it again and rethink it again and rethink it again to assure uh, that it makes absolutely sense for the future. And there's no way you can be sure. So maybe we and should never sure we have, you know, plan B in chart and what's going to happen. You get rid of Mohammed bin Salman. What is going to come next? Well, Nobody seems to be telling me that. Right. And uh, so I agree with you on all that. And I, you know, uh, I'm taking this as a very educational experience for me. Now, the big question that I have and my big concern, and you may tell me that I'm, I'm projecting an unrealistic scenario. If you don't, I'm sure somebody else will. Here's my, my concern. Uh, and again, this might be unrealistic, but the, I've seen the world change in a blink of an eye in many different ways in my lifetime. So 10 years from now, America, 15 years from now, America is completely oil independent. How does that change things? Not much. Really? Yeah, because um, the rest of the world's not going to become carbon neutral. Okay. The United States and Europe are producing more and more of their GDP with less and less oil, and they will continue to do that. 
but India and China uh, are not going to go. Uh, it's going to be a long time. And look, China built more coal-fired power plants last year than the rest of the world put together. Uh, they are not going to start driving Teslas in India anytime soon. I believe that. Um, I don't know if you've been to India lately or if you've been to Egypt. You know, they have people who don't have bicycles. Right. Those people will be very happy to get a Volkswagen or a Hyundai. And so, and I saw these numbers the other day, and I don't know how accurate they are, but I read them, and they, and, and, and they said, you know, right today there's 1.5 billion cars in the world. And in 2035 or something, 15 years, there will be 2 billion cars. And there will be, in 2035, half a billion electric cars. But that means there will still be 1.5 billion gasoline cars. Right. So I um, don't think that the global demand for oil is going to fall dramatically. It may very well fall in the United States and Europe, but what? the rest of the world, it won't. And the, the, the other thing to say is this, it's very important. And perhaps we should have begun by saying this, the Saudis produce oil at somewhere between three and five barrel dollars a barrel. Okay. In Texas, it costs you $45 a barrel. The North Sea and places like that, it costs you 70, 80, $100 a barrel. So the Saudis, the last barrel of commercially produced oil on this planet will come from Saudi Arabia because they are the low cost producer. Gotcha. Uh, and so they're going to remain important to the global economy for a very long time. I don't doubt that. I, I'm, I'm certain you're right about that. But m my concern is, okay, if America becomes oil independent, let's say, um, uh, and so does that push Saudi our relationship with Saudi Arabia away from us and towards China? That's a good point. Um, I think that's almost inevitable that um, China has become a more important partner for Saudi Arabia than it was 10 years ago. That's right. true. So China is Saudi Arabia's biggest trading partner. It's not the United States. Wow, I'm not, I wasn't um, aware of that. The biggest, in both in terms of stuff that Saudi Arabia imports and in terms of where they sell their oil, China is the biggest, their biggest customer. Uh, so yes, that is true. China and, and Asia, they sell very little oil to the United States anymore. Um, most of their oil goes to Asia. Uh, and so, yes, that is, that is true that they're, and, and you know, it's interesting in that the United States, we're always worried about the supply of oil. Are we going to be able to get enough oil? What's the price going to be that we have to pay? The Saudis, it's, you know, if you think about it, they have a totally the opposite view. They're always worried about demand. They say, damn, who's going to buy our oil today? We need somebody, I mean, our oil's not doing us any good here. We got to sell it. And how much can we sell it for? So they're, they're always looking at the demand side. And the demand right now is coming from Asia and particularly from China, yes. Very, very informative uh, hour. And plus, uh, the name of the book is Vision or Mirage, Saudi Arabia at the Crossroads. It's by David Rundell. It's in uh, Amazon right now. You can uh, There's a link in the description where you can buy the book directly. Uh, David, I, I thank you so much for this um, uh, short-form education. I mean, uh, it sounds like I could probably go for a four-year education with you and, and still not know everything I need to know or want to know about it. But I wish you great success, and I thank you so much well, for 
sharing I thank your you for the opportunity. It was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it, and I wish um, I wish you a good evening, and thank you for the opportunity. Great. Thanks, and bye for now. Bye-bye. David Ronell, folks. Now, uh, I, I would suggest that people get the book. I, you know, a lot of people, and I, I run into this on social media a lot, people don't want to necessarily trust the media to get your information. Well, here it is. Here's a book. You can go and get information for yourself. You don't have to trust some um, media outlet, some big corporate media entity. This is a guy who lived on the ground in the in the area knows it better than anybody in the world and can explain it to you in terms that you really need to know without uh telling you what your opinion should be so here's your perfect opportunity for everybody who's saying don't trust the media don't get your news from cable tv news here's where you can get your information right from this book it's called uh vision or mirage saudi arabia at the crossroads again the link is in the description i hope you learned something tonight i certainly did uh uh been enlightened on a couple of points and a lot to think about so i hope you uh take some value from this program i hope you come back subscribe tell your friends about it all that kind of stuff i'll be with you tomorrow night at 8 p.m with joey reynolds who was a got a career in radio broadcasting specifically focusing on sci-fi uh type of uh broadcasting and production uh so i look forward to talking to you then until then i'm matt napa for the mind dog tv podcast thanks for coming have a great night and bye for now
me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now.